Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Manfred Polini, who is a professor of physics at Carnegie Mellon University and a member of the CMS experiment operating at the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC at CERN. He is looking for the production of dark matter particle in collision events at the LHC. He has also set up a lab at the university to build electronic devices for the upgrade of a component of the CMS detector called the NCAP calorimeter. In recent years, he has started to explore novel machine learning and AI-based approaches for event classification in particle physics, where he's interested to use ML to go beyond the classic uh, data analysis approaches that have been used in particle physics for many years. Welcome, Manfred. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for having me, uh, Gil. Absolutely, yeah. So I want to start with supersymmetry uh, and really have a general discussion with you on what is supersymmetry and the, why is it important? My understanding, Manfred, and I have very, very limited understanding of this, uh, is that uh, we, have, we have a reasonably established um, idea called a standard model, uh, mm-hmm. but observations that we can quite explain uh, with, the, with the standard model. And so supersymmetry is a principle that uh, might allow us to go beyond that. And I, I understand that there are multiple supersymmetry theories around. So, so do you want to sort of set the context for standard models first and, and why supersymmetry symmetry came about? Yeah, let's uh, do this. Um, I think you have a pretty good uh, understanding, but maybe to sort of set uh, the uh, context, uh, let's sort of define what we call the uh, standard model of uh, particle uh, physics. And maybe we'll start with the, uh, with the atom, where we know, you know, an atom is uh, made out of, uh, you know, a nucleus that is surrounded by uh, electrons. And then inside the nucleus, there are protons and uh, neutrons. And now we know, you know, the protons and neutrons have a substructure and uh, there are uh, quarks uh, inside a a proton and uh, a a neutron. And so these are, you know, elementary particles that we consider nowadays as uh, elementary. Inside a 
proton and a neutron, they are two different uh, types of quarks. We call them up quarks and uh, down quarks. And it turns out they are, um, they sort of come in pairs and we call it uh, families. So there are sort of three types of families for a total of uh, six uh, quarks uh, that we know nowadays. Hmm. And yeah. Okay. So, so just to, <laughs> so, so we came a long way, Manfred. So we came from earth, water, fire as fundamental, <laughs> forms, you know, to, to atoms. Uh, and um, and then we got into quarks. So we know that now uh, the protons and the and the neutrons inside an atom are made up of quarks, and there are a variety of quarks, right? Um, how many how many different quarks exist? There there are six uh, quarks um, that we know about right now. They are called up quark and down quark. They have uh, funny names, and uh, one is called a strange quark and a charm quark. And then there's a bottom quark and a top quark, which is uh, sort of the heaviest uh, elementary particle that we know about uh, right now. And, and do they have a do they uh, they have a charge and a spin? That's right. Yes, very good, Gil. Yes, so they have uh, properties. You know, they they have a mass, which is something we under, do not understand uh, very well, but they have a charge. And um, um, I alluded to there are you know three uh, quarks inside a proton and we know a proton you know has a charge of uh, plus uh, one you know electric uh, charge so the uh, quarks inside the proton have like one third of uh, charge and it actually turns out the up quark has a charge of two thirds so of plus a two thirds um, which gives you four thirds and then the down quark has minus one third so this makes a plus one for the charge of the uh, proton uh, that, so they have sort of fractional uh, charges and they also yeah. have they also have spin. yeah yes Gil Manfred so one one of the confusions I always get so these uh, one third and two third charges um, are they are they sort of are they related to the charge of the electron or something that we made up really no they are really related uh, to the charge of the uh, electron okay. so as I sort of just try to point out like you know the proton is made out of two up quarks and one uh, down quark and each of the up quarks has a charge of uh, plus two thirds. So this is, you know, you add up plus two thirds plus, plus another two thirds gives you four thirds. And then the charge of the down quark is minus one third. So this gives you then a total of uh, three thirds uh, charge, which is, you know, plus one, which yes. is the electric charge of the uh, proton. Okay. And the neutron, the combination makes it neutral? Exactly. So there is one up quark and two down quarks. And so plus two thirds minus two times one third gives you zero. It's pretty okay. simple, actually, if you sort of think about it uh, like that. Yeah, it's very elegant. Uh, and so so we have a handful of um, fundamental particles. It all sort of fits. Uh, but then um, but then we have observations that we can't quite explain, right? The standard model, is that the problem? Yeah, so there are quite a few uh, questions about uh, the standard model. Um, and, you know, some of them have to do with um, some, some of them have to do, for example, with, you know, the Higgs boson, which is a sort of the last piece of the standard model that was discovered in uh, 2012. Mm. Um, and, you know, they have sort of, and they also have to do with sort of the, the forces that we are sort of know about. Um, so, you know, we just talked about, you know, electric charges. So there's the electric and magnetic uh, force, the electromagnetic force. There's a weak force, uh, which uh, is sort of relevant for radioactive uh, decays or for you know, fusion processes in, uh, in the sun. 
Um, and then there's a strong force, which is, uh, you know, important for the holding the quarks, you know, with their charges together inside, you know, a proton in a very, you know, confined uh, space. Um, and then, of course, there is the gravitational force that we all feel as, um, you know, here on, on Earth. And these forces have sort of different strengths. And one issue is sort of the gravitational force is so much weaker than the other forces. Um, which led to something that's called the hierarchy principle. And this is something that, you know, the standard model cannot really uh, explain. So this is sort of one one issue that's often pointed to, which is sort of missing in the uh, standard model. Um, so the, uh, I remember um, at the LHC, uh, they found the Higgs boson. That was 2012, you mentioned? Yeah, this was on uh, July 4th in uh, 2012. I, I remember very well because... I had just been at CERN uh, right before that, but then I had returned and, you know, it was the 4th of uh, July where I joined a, you know, a video conference at uh, 3 a.m. in the morning uh, here in on the East Coast. Yeah, I can't believe it's eight years ago. Time is really flying, <laughs> flying here. Yeah, it is true. Uh, and so, so, so we needed the Higgs boson to, to sort of um, explain gravity, but the strong force that you mentioned inside a proton. Now, now that force is not really mediated by another particle, is it? Yeah, so the, so the forces are all uh, mediated sort of by mediator particles. Um, and so the, the force, the strong force, you know, is mediated by a particle that we call a, a gluon. So you can sort of really think of, you know, the gluon clues together the quarks inside uh, the, uh, the, the proton. Um, yeah. And you know, so we can sort of, we have sort of a model that also accommodates, you know, the understanding of how these forces, you know, interact with our particles, with the quarks, or then there's another part of the standard model, which is like the electrons, there are other particles like the electrons, and we call them uh, leptons. Um, yeah. And so, so you mentioned, so the, this, this strong force inside the proton, it has to be really strong because you have charges in, in very close proximity there, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. And then we, you mentioned the weak force in the in the nuclear fusion, um, and so so it all seems to fit, uh, Manfred. So is the is the problem that we can explain the dark matter? Is that the first issue with the standard model? So yeah, so this is one issue exactly that you know we know from you know cosmological observations that there has to be more matter in the universe and especially surrounding uh, galaxies or galaxy clusters um, than what we can see. So the, you know, the visible matter that is given through suns and we know, you know, interstellar gas and uh, and all that, that cannot really account for some of the phenomena that we uh, see. For example, the um, something that is called the rotation curves, uh, how fast stars, for example, go in sort of the arms of, let's say, a spiral a galaxy. Um, they sort of go much faster than they would, than you would expect from, you know, only the visible uh, mass that you see through, you know, all the uh, stars inside uh, the uh, the galaxy, and so that sort of led to assume that there has to be more matter in, you know, in the universe, you know, in the uh, galaxies that we cannot uh, see, and so this is where the uh, term dark matter was uh, was coined. And it, it's a pretty big chunk. It's about twenty-five percent of the of the universe, right? So, it's not something you can you can ignore. But I know that 
there are some hypotheses around um, whims and axions and other candidates that might make up the dark matter. And those things are not really part, are they part of the standard model or, or how, how do those things fit with the standard model? Right, so these are really not, you know, so the, the, the dark matter that we, that we know has to be there, um, we sort of really are very sure that this is not made out, out of uh, standard model uh, particles. Um, so one, you know, because it does not, you know, it is sort of dark, so this means it does not interact through the electromagnetic interactions, so it does not, you know, produce light or interact in a way that would produce light, which we then, you know, would be able uh, to uh, to see. Um, and so, you know, it could be something like, you know, there are particles, they're called neutrinos, uh, they are produced very abundantly in the sun, and they don't interact very much with, you know, with matter. They go, you know, through us, you know, uh, many, many of them, you know, every, every second and don't really interact. But we, we, we know uh, from, you know, the way the universe um, evolved that, for example, neutrinos would not be, uh, you know, sufficient to explain uh, the uh, dark matter. So it has to be some, some kind of matter outside of the, uh, of the standard model. And so what you mentioned, like WIMPs, this is sort of, weakly interacting massive uh, particles. Uh, so it could be, you know, some new particles that were produced, you know, right after the Big Bang, um, but, you know, are sort of left over uh, since then, but they, you know, only very in weakly interact with our regular uh, matter. Okay. So, so neutrinos though are part of the standard model, right? Co correct, yeah, that's right. Okay, and so so WIMPs, as you mentioned, weakly interacting massive particle is really a hypothesis um, that is outside the standard model. So this this would be something completely different. That's uh, right. And are, are axions in the same same sort of a way? Yeah. So axioms are also sort of particles that are outside of the uh, out of this outside of the uh, standard uh, model. Um, they come from some other aspects uh, that um, that have to do with uh, sort of some of the flaws of the uh, standard uh, model. Um, let's see. So the the WIMS is sort of, you know, what connects us to the supersymmetry that we uh, sort of talked about uh, before. Um, so supersymmetry is, you know, a, um, you know, an extension of the standard model. Um, and it has to do with what you, uh, what you mentioned before, you know, the uh, quarks, they do not only have charge, but they also have another property, which we call a uh, spin. Um, and so, so it turns out that the elementary particles, you know, like the quarks or the leptons, like the electron, they have uh, a half integer uh, spin. Um, like, you know, it's, spin is, is measured sort of in, uh, in uh, units of the uh, Planck uh, constant. Um, and so we call particles that have a half integer spin, we call them uh, fermions after, you know, Enrico uh, Fermi. Um, but then it turns out that sort of the, uh, the, uh, the mediator, the force mediator particles like the uh, gluon uh, or like the photon, for example, these particles all have, have an integer spin. So, you know, not half, but an integer uh, spin. Um, and so now supersymmetry is sort of something that sort of postulates that um, there should be particles, you know, that sort of are symmetric, uh, that sort of symmetrize this, that we have for each fermion, for each half integer spin, we have a partner that has, you know, uh, an integer spin 
of you know uh, instead of one half instead of but it has a one and for all the integer spin you know force carrier particles they are like half integer uh, supersymmetric uh, partners so we mm -hmm. sort of you know double you know with this theory even more than double the you know known uh, particles and, and so how many particles are there in the standard model itself um, so in the standard model, we have, you know, six quarks, uh, six uh, leptons, and then we have, uh, you know, the the uh, charge carrier. So we have the uh, photon, uh, the uh, two uh, heavy uh, vector bosons, the W and the uh, Z uh, boson. Um, we have the gluons, and then uh, we have the uh, Higgs boson. So this is, um, I don't know, 16, 17, something like this. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. And so, so, so you mentioned, so the fermions have um, half a spin, the bosons have uh, integer spins. And so, so the idea of supersymmetry is to state the standard model and essentially have a sort of a middle reflection of that. So you, if you had 16, I don't know how many numbers are there. If you got 16 particles in standard model, you'll end up with 32 uh, if you apply supersymmetry. Yeah, so it depends a little bit on, you know, um... So there's another issue with uh, the supersymmetry. Um, if if it were like an exact uh, symmetry, uh, so for example, if we go back to the charge, um, charge is something that distinguishes particles from antiparticles. So for example, you know, an electron has a charge of a minus one electric charge, and it has also a partner which is a positron, which is sort of its antiparticle, um, and the only difference between the electron and the positron is the charge plus one versus a minus one. The other properties like the mass, the spin is all uh, the same. Um, so if supersymmetry, you know, were sort of the same kind of uh, symmetry, you would expect that the supersymmetric particles would have exactly the same properties as our known uh, standard model particles. In particular, they would have, you know, the same uh, mass. But we don't know, uh, but we know that this is not the case because we would have, you know, uh, seen uh, these kind of uh, particles, even if they very weakly interact only with our standard model uh, particles. So the symmetry, you know, there's sort of a mechanism we call like a symmetry breaking. So it's, it's sort of not an exact symmetry, but a broken uh, symmetry. Um, and so it depends a little bit how you do this uh, breaking of the symmetry, which then gets into different models of, uh, of supersymmetry. And you will then actually get more than, you know, double the number of standard model particles. You will actually quite get, get a few more. And there's also, you know, then sort of interactions, how they interact with each other. So you get, you know, quite, quite a bit more uh, free uh, parameters in this, uh, in this uh, model. Uh, but uh, is the dominant one spin, Manfred, uh, the, the way that we kind of reflect these particles uh, is predominantly spin? Right. So the different, the only difference between, you know, our standard model particles and the supersymmetric particles would be the spin plus, you know, the mass. Uh, so we sort of think, you know, the masses are sort of in a range where we could produce these uh, particles with a collider like the uh, Large Hadron Collider. Yeah, so I want to I want to talk about that. So you're spending a lot of time in the LHC. Um, yeah, you know, for many years, these experiments have been going on. I understand, Manfred, uh, that looking for the supersymmetric uh, particles, but so far we haven't found them, right? That's right. We have not uh, found any. And you know, there's people who sort of think, well, you know, we have looked for these supersymmetric particles for you know ten year, twenty years. 
you know, there were already searches, you know, not only at the Large Hadron Collider, but at, you know, colliders uh, before that. Um, and there people say, well, you know, it looks like these supersymmetry, these particles that don't exist. Now, as I sort of try to elude is that, you know, we don't know exactly how the supersymmetric uh, theory really uh, works. We don't know exactly what the masses of this particle would be, how they will really, you know, predominantly uh, produced. And what we have been doing so far is sort of look for very sort of reduced and scaled down uh, versions of, you know, maybe a full uh, supersymmetric uh, model in order to sort of be able to, you know, to search for something that is sort of easy uh, to, uh, to look for. And we have sort of realized, well, you know, sort of the low hanging uh, fruits in uh, supersymmetry, um, you know, it doesn't look like, you know, there's a lot of low hanging fruit there. So we have to sort of get a little bit more uh, advanced and maybe think a little bit uh, and maybe consider other ways, uh, you know, these supersymmetric particles could be uh, produced or look in different uh, phase spaces. Um, so it's not like, you know, we haven't found it yet and we should give up. I think there is, you know, quite a bit of uh, enthusiasm still to, uh, you know, continue to search uh, for supersymmetric particles at the uh, Large Hadron Collider. Yeah, it's sort of an uh, asymmetric um, experiment, right? If you find it, then it gives uh, good credence to uh, supersymmetry. But if you don't find it, you cannot reject it. <laughs> that's right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so this is, you know, this is sort of the interesting thing about doing research. You, know, you don't really know what you're looking for. And there's always, you know, a back and forth with, you know, theoretical models and, you know, people who come up with uh, great uh, theories. Um, and then there are experimentalists like me who sort of search for them. And if we don't find them, then, you know, this is sort of feedback for people who build other uh, theoretical uh, models. And the really exciting thing is, you know, you don't know what nature really has in store, you know. Supersymmetry is, you know, mathematical, a very, you know, uh, elegant uh, theory, but it is very possible that, you know, nature hasn't really realized this and has maybe realize something completely different that we don't think about yet. And so this is sort of this back and forth between, you know, carrying out an experiment and verifying a theory, uh, like, you know, we have verified our standard model for many years versus, you know, looking for a theory that's not yet proven. And, you know, as I said, nature might not have realized this kind of theory, even so, you know, to us, it appears mathematically very, you know, elegant. Uh, you you mentioned the CMS detector that um, that that you are uh, making um, at the CMU. What exactly is CMS? So CMS stands for the uh, compact muon uh, solenoid. Um, so it sort of describes a little bit uh, sort of some of the elements of the uh, of the of the uh, detector. So the detector itself is you know a large. Uh, it, it's 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 sort of large like a house. It's really big. Um, I sometimes like to sort of tell the story that um, some years ago, um, maybe five years ago or something like this, I spent the summer with my family uh, at, uh, at CERN. And it was in a time like now where the accelerator didn't uh, run. And so we were actually able to go down in the uh, cavern and, you know, uh, look at the uh, CMS uh, detector. And I had told, you know, my, my wife and my daughters, they were, I don't know, 13, 14 at that time. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really large, you know, and so we come down there and, you know, the first thing they say, wow, it's really large, like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like who, you know, who listens uh, to that here?
<laughs> no, no. So, so you know, um, um, I, I don't know. People say LHC is the sort of the largest machine that we ever built, right? Yeah, I think this is really correct. You know, I don't want to sort of get into, you know, we are larger than others or into the, you know, bigger is better uh, aspect. It is, you know, a, uh, so the collider, it is uh, in a tunnel that is about 100 meter underground in the uh, Geneva area in uh, in Switzerland. And the tunnel itself has a circumference of uh, almost uh, 17 uh, miles. So it is really, uh, you know, quite a, a big uh, instrument. And then, you know, the detectors themselves just maybe to uh, give a few numbers. So the CMS detector um, is about 15 meters high, 15 meters wide, and about 20 meters uh, sort of long, sort of really like, you know, a house. Um, and it's made out of different uh, components um, and it's called compact because it has a lot of like steel in its outer part, um, like more even than what it's in the uh, Eiffel uh, Tower. Um, and I sometimes try to point out it's also called compact because there's a, another experiment, a sister experiment, which is called the Atlas experiment. And it is uh, twice as large, like twice as long and twice as uh, high. Uh, so that's why we are sort of compact. Um, so, so there are two ways to potentially improve the sensitivity, right? One is to increase the energy level, and the other is to increase the sensitivity of the detector, uh, detectors uh, themselves. I guess the energy uh, can can you go much further uh, into the into increasing the energy levels? So, with the with the LHC, we, we are sort of have almost reached its uh, design uh, energy. Um, so, when the LHC started, it sort of started at half of the sort of design energy, uh, which is 14 uh, giga electron volts. We sort of um, we sort of talk about energy in these electron volts, which is sort of an energy that a charge sort of um, would accumulate it if it goes through a potential of like, you know, of one volt uh, difference. Um, and so it comes in like, you know, mega and uh, giga sort of what we know from our uh, computers. And so the LHC is, you know, 14 uh, tera electron uh, volts. Um, and we have operated it at 13 uh, so far. So there is not very much room. We're sort of, you know, at the sort of, um, you know, at its uh, top uh, energy. Um, the exciting thing that is coming in about uh, five uh, years, five, six years is the um, the collider will sort of go into a mode where they increase the rate of uh, collisions with which we sort of collide the uh, protons. And this is another way to sort of increase the sensitivity by sort of, you know, increasing the number of collisions and sort of increasing the our data rate, you know, by at least another factor of, uh, of 10. Hmm. So that's a, that's a big difference. Um, and the detectors, um, and that is where engineering could continue to improve the, the sensitivity of the detectors, right, over time. That's right, yes. And, you know, sometimes, um, like when we go into this, we call it the, you know, high luminosity phase. Luminosity is sort of a uh, quantity we use to sort of express the uh, collision rate. So when we go into a high collision rate uh, phase, um, we produce so many particles, you know, in these collisions that the particles that go through our detector they sort of act like radiation towards, you know, our detector devices and they sort of damage them. And some of them, you know, we cannot really, they do not really function at that time anymore. And so we, you know, replace them with uh, actually new uh, technology. And this is, you know, what um, we are involved here in uh, at, uh, at Carnegie Mellon, uh, where we sort of, you know, have set up a laboratory to build some new devices for our upgraded uh, detector. Mm -hmm. 
And so, so after having been involved in this uh, for a long time, man, where, where do you where do you come out right now in terms of uh, the credibility for the supersymmetry principle um, after having looked at all the data? <laughs> yeah, where do I come out? Um, that's a good sort of question. As I sort of you know mentioned earlier, I'm still you know very excited about um, continuing the search uh, for for supersymmetry, but. You know, clearly at some point, you know, if we really do not find uh, supersymmetry, uh, we will have to sort of declare that, you know, if supersymmetry exists, you know, it does not, you know, it does not uh, exist at energies or masses of uh, supersymmetric particles that we can, you know, um, reach with uh, the uh, Large Hadron uh, Collider. Um, and again, you know, it could certainly be that these particles have masses that are sort of just beyond, you know, the reach of the uh, current uh, collider. We we don't know, uh, you know, and that's you know that's exciting, of course, uh, too. Yeah. yeah, you know, I always think that God has a sense of humor, you know. Right. Uh, yep. yep. You you are teased. You are teased with. Uh, some bits, uh, but you can really get it. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I always sort of think, you know, um, nature will always, you know, you know, tease us with something, uh, something new, and uh, keep us uh, searching and searching. I don't think we will ever completely understand, you know, the whole uh, universe. Even so, you know, the dream of uh, physics is really sort of to come up with this, you know, theory of uh, of everything. But I sort of, you know, so far we always, you know, kept uh, going and there was always where, you, where sort of physics felt like, oh, I think we understand everything. Then a completely new uh, door opened, like, you know, more than 100 years ago, you know, quantum mechanics opened a completely new, you know, area of, uh, of physics uh, that nobody uh, sort of thought about. And we have sort of just to, you know, keep searching to find uh, this uh, door that gives us this glimpse into, you know, this new world of understanding. Right. We'll take a quick break, uh, Manfred, and when we come back, uh, we'll talk about some of the machine learning approaches uh, that you're applying to particle physics. That would be great. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Um, Manfred, we were talking about uh, supersymmetry um, as an extension of standard model uh, which then requires, uh, not necessarily require, but then uh, hypothesize a variety of particles that we haven't seen. Uh, and one of the objectives of the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva is to see, is to see if we can actually uh, detect some of those particles in major collisions, um, major, uh, major experiments, and uh, so far we haven't found them. Um, but um, more recently, you have been applying uh, this uh, emerging ideas in deep learning and machine learning uh, in particle physics. You have a paper out uh, entitled End-to-End -End Physics Event Classification uh, with CMS Open Data, Applying Image-Based Deep Learning to Detector Data for the Direct Classification of Collision Events at the LHC. This seems yep. 
great, great application because you have tons and tons of data. And, um, and I wonder, so this will be more in um, unsupervised uh, learning, right? Uh, because you don't really have labeled data uh, in any way, do you? We, 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 we do. I mean, this, this can be in, you know, supervised learning, unsupervised uh, learning. Um, so maybe sort of just to, to connect to what we talked about before, you know, we talked about, you know, upgrading our uh, detector, making it, you know, giving it sort of better, better hardware, uh, better, you know, instruments. Um, so this is sort of one way to sort of, you know, improve your experiment. And the other is to sort of become more, uh, you know, creative with respect to how you analyze the data, how you try to tease out uh, certain effects uh, and or how you try to, you know, understand uh, the data. And, you know, machine learning is, uh, you know, a very, very popular, um, you know, way sort of to uh, to do this. And I have to admit, you know, I, I have ignored machine learning for quite a long time, <laughs> um, which, you know, I always sort of, you know, um, you know, I always sort of said, you know, look, you know, what is this machine learning all about? We here in particle physics, you know, we have been using neural networks for like 30 years to, you know, classify our data. What are you guys sort of talking about with this machine learning, you know? And I've really sort of ignored uh, it. And um, like three or four years ago, um, one of my graduate students sort of became a little bit interested in machine learning. And, you know, this is a great thing and the beauty of being a professor, you know, you you know, you learn with your students and often you learn, uh, you know, from your uh, students. And we sort of, you know, started to talk and I sort of realized, yeah, there's quite a few things that I had ignored that I had not paid attention that happened, you know, beyond sort of the neural networks or boosted decision trees or multivariate type of analysis approaches that, you know, some people also call machine learning, but there's quite a bit more that I had sort of uh, really ignored and not uh, paid attention um, and these yeah. things, you know, these things have uh, to do with, you know, images and, you know, how images are recognized um, and how you work with uh, with images. And, you know, this is all driven by, you know, image recognition, face recognition, where, you know, a lot of advances have been uh, made, as well as, you know, the autonomous uh, driving, you know, all the, you know, driverless uh, cars that, you know, process uh, images, you know, very, very uh, quickly. And, um, you know, I... You know, I had really not realized, yeah, wow, there's quite a bit uh, out there that I had not uh, paid attention uh, to. And uh, so, you know, then, you know, my student and I sort of really sort of uh, got uh, got into this. Yeah. And, you know, it's um, one thing that has happened, as you know, last 10 years is that the computing capabilities uh, have gone up significantly, uh, both in terms of CPU power as well as memory. So you can take and hold very large amounts of data and memory to do some of these things, which we couldn't uh, before. Uh, mathematics itself, like you say, neural nets have been around uh, from the 60s. Uh, many of the machine learning techniques have been around, both engineering uh, and, uh, and physics have been using them. Uh, and so it's not really advancement in mathematics, but more advancement in, in technology. Uh, yes. That might allow us to do some of these things, but I want to dig a little deeper into this, Manfred. So, um, do we have a so so? Let's say we go in and we're looking for a specific particle, and from the experimental design, do we have an ex ante expectation of what that image would look like? 
So maybe let me explain a little bit how we sort of do like a data analysis. So how we sort of analyze the data that are taken with an experiment like yes. the CMS detector. And then I can sort of relate it a little bit, you know, what what the ideas that, you know, that I have sort of worked on the, in the past few years with respect to using sort of uh, machine learning uh, for that. Um, and they are sort of somewhat uh, connected and uh, we will sort of get to your uh, to your question. So let's so when you know when the large hadron collider you know uh, collides like protons and you know energy is transformed into some matter new particles are created um, you know and so the only particles that we can really see are particles that are live long enough that they can go through our large detector and interact uh, sort of with the matter uh, there mm -hmm. and the way they interact is often you know in form of uh, you know like we measure some charges or we measure some, um, you know, some electrical uh, signals. So sort of what we call sort of the raw data is sort of in principle some, you know, electrical uh, signals in the uh, detector. And we sort of record this, but then we want to sort of relate this to really something that happens, you know, in the uh, in the initial uh, collision. So we want to really like translate this into the particles that were uh, created. And so the... So yeah, sorry. Yes. Question, Manfred. So these are proton, uh, proton to proton collisions that we are talking about. Yes, this is the LHC collides uh, two protons. Um, so what actually interacts is sort of the constituents inside the protons. So there is like we talked about the quarks and the uh, and the gluons that are inside the uh, protons. And if we sort of look, what sort of the most interaction rate or the highest rate is sort of the gluons from one proton would sort of interact with the gluon from another proton and okay. sort of their energies that we that we give these protons then you know uh create sort of new particles we we call this like you know new pairs of particles sort of coupled to these uh, gluons or they could also um you know new pairs of uh, particles can be produced and a lot of these particles you know they decay very quickly into more particles and then you know with some energy other pairs of particles are produced and so on and so this sort of results into often a large amount of hundreds of uh, particles to be produced in these proton-proton uh, uh, collisions. So, so I know that um, you so you, you you take these protons they go around the tunnel many times so by the time they collide are they getting closer to the speed of light or what is the what is the speed at which they collide? So what so um, when the uh, protons go around in the tunnel, they go more or less with uh, with the speed of light. It's sort of like 99 point, and then there's like 10 nines percent of the uh, speed of light. So it's really like the speed of light. And so they go around like 11,000 times uh, per second in the LHC tunnel. So in the uh, 17 miles ring, they you know run around there like 11,000 uh, 11,000 times uh, per uh, per second. Um, and I often sort of talk about the LHC is, you know, beyond, uh, underneath uh, the, uh, some, one part is under, underneath the uh, French uh, part and the other is underneath the uh, Swiss territory. So, you know, they cross the border like 11,000 yeah. times a second. <laughs> right. Passports, uh, passports are out of the question. Yep, exactly. <laughs> These are, you know, I guess the open borders. <laughs> um, and so, so when they collide, um, as you say, gluon, uh, gluons might interact, they might create new particles, they might decay into other particles. And so, so the trick here is to have um, very, very sensitive 
detectors and, and really capture all the data um, that then could be analyzed at a later time. That's right. Yeah. So we have sort of different uh, sort of sub-detectors, you know, one sub-detector sort of gives us, you know, um, points in space where sort of particles, uh, charged particles go by. Other detectors measure like the total energy of, uh, you know, a particle like an electron that goes into this uh, device, where other particles only interact with some chambers that are sort of on the outside of the uh, CMS uh, detectors. And so we sort of use this uh, knowledge like, you know, if you have three-dimensional uh, space points, you sort of need to connect uh, the dots in order to sort of get the trajectory or the path of, uh, of particles. And so this is sort of something that we call the, uh, you know, where we process the data. So where we sort of turn the original electric uh, signals into something that is related to really, you know, particles are being uh, created. And um, there are sort of other methods where you then can sort of assign, you know, a track or a trajectory to come from a certain particle and then you know it's momentum or it's uh, energy. And so, so in this data processing, you know, we sort of create certain what we call objects, you know, we have that then re relate to certain particles. Uh, so we have, for example, you know, um, an electron object that would relate to a particle that went uh, through, you know, so this was very likely an electron that went uh, through our uh, detector. And so in the end, we have sort of, you know, sort of for every event, we have sort of big tables of these kind of objects, electrons or, you know, protons, for example, or, you know, there's bundles of particles that we call uh, jets and, uh, and so on. These are, if I understand it correctly, Manfred, these are things that you are not interested in. So are you trying to sort of subtract out? Um, so, yeah, so this is sort of the regular way we, we, we sort of do our analysis. You know, we, we, you know, we take the... Uh, raw data, we sort of reconstruct the data. And so we put sort of information into um, into this reconstruction process. And then we sort of have these, these objects and we sort of put sort of some intuitive uh, knowledge uh, into this. And then often, you know, in order to search for a new particle, you would work with these objects and maybe sort of feed them in some, you know, classifier or, or something like this. And so when uh, my student and I sort of really sort of got into, you know, machine learning. The first thing um, we wanted to do was sort of really sort of start with uh, the raw data in order to understand a little bit uh, what, you know, what the machines can really uh, do. Um, and my idea was always to sort of really try to sort of go beyond what we can do with, you know, regular uh, techniques. Uh, you know, this is something new, you know, it's very fancy. Let's see whether we can use it to do a better than, you know, the the standard, uh, so to speak. And so we sort of, I always like to start with sort of simple uh, projects. So we started with a very simple um, project that was related with the uh, detector component that my group is involved in, where we have some, you know, responsibility, you know, operating uh, this uh, this uh, detector component. And it's called the electromagnetic uh, colorimeter. And I don't want to go too much into, you know, what it uh, does. Uh, yes so that we can maybe focus a little bit more on what I actually wanted to, to do. And so we did a first a little project where we um, wanted to sort of distinguish, you know, whether one can dist distinguish um, um, an electron or a photon being, uh, you know, measured with this electromagnetic electromagnetic uh, colorimeter. Um, and with regular means, you cannot distinguish this, um, but um, we sort of really used sort of, so the first thing, you know, we, we needed to sort of turn our 
um, our data into sort of images, uh, which for this electromagnetic colorimeter was uh, sort of easy to do. You can sort of give different colors to sort of the energies of uh, what we sort of uh, measure. And it sort of turned out, you know, to um, that, you know, with, you know, that we actually, you know, using machine learning, we could actually distinguish, you know, an electron from a photon, which was, you know, very, very uh, something that you could really not uh, sort of do uh, before. And this then sort of got us to the idea of, you know, what about, you know, we sort of just take the raw data, you know, give it to a machine and then sort of ask the question, you know, does, do these data contain a new particle or do they decay? Uh, do they contain, you know, the decay of a Higgs boson, uh, for example, and sort of like forget about all the, you know, reconstructing the data, forming these objects, and then uh, doing uh, something with this. And so this sort of got us into what we call this end-to-end -end, uh, approach of, uh, of data classification. Sorry, so, Gil, this was a little bit of a long uh, story. Uh, you probably have some <laughs> questions uh, that you had along the way. Yeah, that makes sort of sense. So um, the, simplistically then, if we can look at, um, you know, what could happen to known particles like electrons and photons, um, you could then use that as labeled information in the image, right? Um, and so if, if you are from the experiment, you're finding an image that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, uh, Manfred, mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're finding something that has low probability of fitting with anything that we know, then maybe that is data that requires further analysis is that it could be used as sort of a filtering out uh, things that might not be that interesting. Yes, very good, Gil. Yeah, so you sort of uh, have have the right idea. So one could can then, of course, sort of think uh, further, you know, one can sort of, and this is, you know, this is sort of still very hypothetical, but uh, because, you know, it would really require, you know, understanding all the uh, detector uh, responses very well and also, you know, understanding, you know, a lot of, you know, reactions that happen in our detector that come from the standard model particles. But one could sort of imagine that, you know, we tell the machine sort of, look, this is sort of, you know, how events from our standard model uh, all would uh, look like. Mm -hmm. And now these are the data that we uh, took with our detector go and find, you know, some anomalies. And this is, again, something that, you know, machine learning can do very well, you know, which is called anomaly uh, detection. Right. Um, and this is sort of, again, sort of an idea that, you know, not only I had, you know, of course, other people uh, do. And, you know, trying to sort of use machine learning is sort of trying to go into this uh, direction that, you know, the, you know, the machines will sort of tell us, hey, this is sort of a really anomalous uh, looking uh, event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So, um, th so this is not something that we have been doing in uh, in LHC type experiments yet. Um, we we do more conventional statistical analysis. We have been doing a lot of conventional statistical analysis, uh, but we have been also now started to, to really do and use a more sort of machine learning based uh, techniques. Um, if I maybe sort of can give another sort of. Um, example of what we're trying to do with sort of anomaly uh, detection. Um, so one task that my uh, group has um, is uh, to sort of monitor the uh, data quality of this uh, subdetector, this electromagnetic colorimeter, while we take uh, data. You know, you want to make sure that when we take data with, with our detector and record this, that, you know, everything uh, functions. 
And uh, so we have, you know, so my group is sort of responsible for like a software package that sort of really looks whether there is, you know, some power supply not working and so a little part of the detector might not be functioning or there's maybe some part of the detector that fires every time there's a collision which of course you don't want um, and so there's sort of like you know very regular software that sort of checks for 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 all this and you you know you always have sort of you know uh, task rules that you have to sort of uh, code um, but another way to do it is you know to use sort of machine learning and you sort of can show the machine like this is how you know the when the detector functions how things uh, would uh, sort of look like and then leave it to you know an anomaly detection um, um, code or you know when you run this that sort of would flag for you sort of oh there's something that does not uh, look uh, right and so this is something we want to sort of implement for the next run of the uh, LHC. Um, so things are, you know, we're, we're really starting to, uh, to use, um, you know, machine learning. Yeah, yeah. So, so in conclusion, Manfred, I want, I want to ask you uh, how you think this area would develop in the next five, 10 years. So I can, you know, I can uh, <laughs> speculate that if, if these techniques are improving, uh, one could imagine uh, sort of continuous experiments being run and managed by machines. And if, if anomaly detection is, is robust enough, you could uh, potentially remove a lot of humans from the process. And uh, when there's a high confidence of an anomaly, then that is, that is only a small subset of the data that requires further analysis. In other words, do you see this going through, going to more of an autonomous uh, experiment uh, type process in the future? Yeah, certainly, you know, because one of the things that we also have to do um, is, you know, we, we cannot record every collision. We cannot record what happens in every uh, collision. So we have always have to sort of uh, choose which, you know, which collisions uh, we, we record and sort of, you know, write on tape. I mean, nowadays you don't write on tape, of course, uh, anymore. Um, and certainly, you know, machine learning is something that, you know, will play a big role into sort of more autonomously uh, make these kind of decisions of what, uh, what data uh, are uh, sort of recorded. Um, but I also sort of want to, um, you know, um, make clear it's really you know the humans are still the ones who um sort of can devise uh, these uh, kind of things you know yeah. it's it's really you know and I, I see this you know when working with my uh, students you cannot sort of just you know let some algorithm uh, lose onto uh, some uh, data sets you always you have to understand uh, what you're doing and you have yeah. to sort of have the intuition and the knowledge of like a scientist or a physicist to to sort of really understand whether this is going in the right direction whether this is producing results that really uh, make uh, sense so you know it is still you know it is for, for me, you know, machine learning is sort of a tool, you know, uh, that we use, like we have used, you know, computers as tools in the past. So these are, you know, fancier tools, but it's really up to us, the humans, to uh, sort of use these tools in the right and in a wise uh, way. Um, so, you know. Yeah. In, um, you know, the, my, my thinking on that, Manfred, is that uh, in particle physics experiments, maybe machine learning is a way to discard data that, we, that will make humans more effective 
in finding what they're looking for. Because one of the issues that we have in, in other domains is that it's not lack of data. Right. It's just explosion of data. And so, so if machines can remove most of it, most of the noise, and then focus the humans on a very small subset of the information that may have some, some utility, then that is that is very useful. Yes, Gil, this is exactly, uh, you know, you see it uh, quite correctly. This is also sort of the way I, I, I see it, um, that, you know, these are tools that really can help, you know, you know, discard maybe a lot of data that are not of interest. And so we can sort of focus on what's uh, what's what's of interest. And this is exactly what also, you know, machine learning is uh, doing in, you know, in other uh, domains. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In conclusion, Manfred, um, uh, do you see uh, that LHC will continue on the supersymmetry track uh, for at least in the short term? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, certainly. Yes. I mean, you know, we will continue to uh, to search for for supersymmetry or for other you know physics phenomena phenomena beyond our uh, standard uh, model. Uh, this is certainly you know. Uh, something that the LHC will uh, continue to do. And as I said, you know, in five, six years, there's a new phase uh, that is uh, happening and the LHC will continue to run for, you know, at least uh, 10 years beyond that until probably uh, 2035. So it's certainly an ongoing uh, experiment. Um, as I said, you know, if we do not find a uh, supersymmetry, then we do have to, you know, go somewhat back uh, to the uh, drawing board and try to sort of see what else uh, could be uh, going on. And there are other things that, of course, are uh, important, like, you know, studying the uh, Higgs boson and studying its uh, properties and, you know, like producing uh, two Higgs bosons that, you know, give... Um, give us an idea about, you know, the Higgs field and maybe let us understand this mass mechanism better. So there's quite a bit that, you know, a, uh, you know, a large, uh, you know, device like the Large Hadron Collider um, can help us uh, to understand about uh, nature. Yeah, yeah. I know that, Manfred, uh, Japan had some, some plans to uh, create a, a more energetic collider. Mm -hmm. um, status on that is it still yeah so japan has been talking about to sort of take the lead to um per, uh, to build what is called a, a linear collider uh, so there uh, electrons and positrons would be uh, collided um and the reason um if you so one issue is if you uh, put charged particles into like a circular uh, orbit they uh, they radiate uh, radiation um and so they uh, and this, um, and the lighter the particles are, the more they sort of radiate. So if you want to accelerate uh, particles like electrons uh, to very high energies, uh, you would have to put them on a very, very uh, large uh, sort of orbit so that they don't go sort of around the bend very erratically. And so the easiest to do it is, you know, do not have them in a circular collider, but in a linear, linear collider, in a straight uh, collider. And so this is sort of um, a different type of uh, accelerator that um, has been talked about uh, and there have been plans to do this in uh, Japan uh, for, for quite some time. But, you know, I mean, these instruments have become, you know, very large and uh, they cost a lot. And so, you know, there's often, you know, international uh, agreements that have to be made, like, you know, the U.S. Contrib contributes uh, to the Large Hadron Collider, uh, you know, which is, you know, in, uh, in, uh, in Europe. Um, and, you know, this sort of then brings us into you know, government funding and, uh, you know, budgets and uh, these kind of uh, discussions. I don't know how far we want to go into this, uh, Gail. 
Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of uncertainty there as uh, as governments change and um, as societies change. The the linear accelerator, uh, so that has to be really long, right, for it to. Work. That's right, because you know you have to sort of accelerate uh, the electrons from like uh, zero to very high uh, energies, uh, and the way this is sort of done is. Um, in sort of like uh, cavities, which is sort of electric fields that sort of, uh, you know, that give a boost uh, to the, uh, to the, uh, to these um, electrons or charged uh, particles. And so you have sort of have to stagger them and it, it, it sort of, yeah, it, it, this will be like mile along uh, accelerators. Um, and they would sort of operate in order to, for example, produce a lot of uh, Higgs bosons um, so that you can, for example, study the uh, properties of the Higgs boson very well, which is something that is, you know, very interesting uh, to do. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Manfred. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for having me. I really enjoyed this. Uh, thank you. Yeah, and good luck with this research. Thank mm -hmm. you. Thanks. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.